Chapter 19 of With Clive in India. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Gary Ullman. A Daring Escape. And what's to be done next, Mr. Charles? That's Hossein, sure enough, but it don't bring us much nearer to getting out. The first thing is to communicate with him in some way, Tim. If he'd come up to the side of the moat, Your Honor might spake to him. That would never do, Tim. There are sure to be sentries on the walls of the prison. We must trust to him. He can see the sentries, and will know best what he can do. It was evident that Hossein did not intend doing anything at present, for still stooping and gathering brushwood, he gradually withdrew further and further from the wall. Then they saw him make his sticks into a bundle, put them on his shoulder, and walk away. During the rest of the day, they saw no more of Hussein. I will write, Charlie said. Fortunately, I have a pencil, telling him that we can lower a light string down to the moat if he can manage to get underneath with a cord which we can hoist up and that he must have two disguises in readiness. I don't think Hussein can read, Tib said, any more than I can myself. I dare say not, Tim, but he will probably have friends in the town. There are men who were employed in the English factory at Kosim Bazaar, hard by. These will be out of employment and will regret the expulsion of the English. We can trust Hussein. At any rate, I will get it ready. Now the first thing we have to do is to loosen one of these bars. I wish we had thought of doing it before. However, the stonework is pretty rotten, and we shall have no difficulty about that. The first thing is to get a tool of some sort. They looked round the room and for some time saw nothing which could in any way serve. The walls, floor, and wide bench running round, upon which the cushions which served as their beds were laid, were all stone. There was no other furniture of any kind. Devil a bit of iron do I see in the place, Mr. Charles, Tim said. They don't even give us a knife for dinner but stew all their meats into a smash. There is something, Tim, Charlie said, looking at the door. Look at those long hinges. The hinges were of ornamented ironwork, extending half across the door. Upon one of the scrolls of this ironwork they set to work, chipping a small piece of stone off an angle of the wall. Outside the window, with great difficulty, they thrust this under the end of the scroll as a wedge. Another piece, slightly larger, was then pushed under it. The gain was almost imperceptible, but at last the piece of iron was raised from the woodwork sufficiently to allow them to get a hold of it with their thumbs. Then, little by little, they bent it upward until at last they could obtain a firm hold of it. The rest was comparatively easy. The iron was tough and strong, but by bending it up and down, they succeeded at last in breaking it off. It was the lower hinge of the door upon which they had operated, as the loss of a piece of iron there would be less likely to catch the eye of anyone coming in. They collected some dust from the corner of the room, moistened it, and rubbed it onto the wood so as to take away its freshness of appearance, and they then set to work with the piece of iron, which was of a curved shape, about three inches long, an inch wide, and an eighth of an inch thick. Taking it by turns, they ground away the stone round the bottom of one of the bars. For the first inch, the stone yielded readily to the iron. 
but below that it became harder, and their progress was slow. They filled the hole which they had made with water to soften the stone and work steadily away till night when to their great joy they found that they had reached the bottom of the bar they then enlarged the hole inwards in order that the bar might be pulled back fortunately it was much decayed by age and they had no doubt that by exerting all their strength together they can bend it sufficiently to enable them to get through at the hour when their dinner was brought they had ceased their work filled up the hole with dust collected from the floor put some dust of the stone over it and smoothed it down so that it would not have been noticed by anyone casually looking from the window it was late at night before they finished their work their hands were sore and bleeding and they were completely worn out with fatigue they had saved from their dinner a good-sized piece of bread they folded up into a small compass the leaf from his pocket-book upon which charlie had written in hindostani his letter to hosin and thrust this into the centre of the piece of bread then charlie told time to lie down and rest for three hours while he kept watch as they must take it in turns all night to listen in case hosin should come outside the lamp was kept burning just as charlie's watch was over he thought he heard a very faint splash in the water below two or three minutes later he again thought he heard the sound he peered out of the window anxiously but the night was dark and he could see nothing listening intently it seemed to him several times that he heard the same faint sound presently something whizzed by him and looking round to his delight he saw a small arrow with a piece of very thin string attached. The arrow was made of a very light wood. Round the iron point was a thick wrapping of cotton, which would entirely deaden its sound as it struck a wall. It was soaked in water, and Charlie had no doubt that the sound he heard was caused by its fall into the moat. After ineffectual trials to shoot through the window, round the centre of the arrow a piece of greased silk was wrapped charlie took this off and found underneath it a piece of paper on which was written in hindustani if you have a bar loosened pull the string and haul up a rope if not throw the arrow down i will come again tomorrow night tim had by this time joined charlie and they speedily began to pull in the string presently a thicker string came up into their hands they continued to pull and soon the end of a stout rope in which knots were tied every two feet came up to them they fastened this to one of the bars and then took hold of that which they had loosened and putting their feet against the wall exerted themselves to the utmost the iron was tougher than they had expected but they were striving for liberty and with desperate exertions they bent it inward until at last there was room enough for them to creep through can you swim tim not a stroke your honor sure you should know that when you fished me out of the water very well tim as i kept you up then twill be easy enough for me now to take you across the moat i will go first and when i get into the water We'll keep hold of the rope till you come down. Take off your boots, for they would be heard scraping against the wall. Be sure you make as little noise as possible, and lower yourself quietly into the water. 
Charlie then removed his own boots, squeezed himself through the bars, and, grasping the rope tightly, begun to descend. He found the knots of immense assistance, for had it not been for them, unaccustomed as he was to the work, he would have been unable to prevent himself from sliding down too rapidly. The window was fully sixty feet above the moat, and he was very thankful when, at last, he felt the water touch his feet. Lowering himself quietly into it, he shook the rope to let Tim know that he could begin his descent. Before Tim was halfway down, Charlie could hear his hard breathing and muttered ejaculations to himself. Sure, I'll never get to the bottom at all. My arms are fairly breaking. I shall squash Mr. Charles if I fall on him. Hold your tongue, Tim, Charlie said in a loud whisper. Tim was silent, but the panting and puffing increased and charlie swam a stroke or two away expecting every moment that tim would fall the irishman however held on but let himself into the water with a splash which aroused the attention of the sentry above who instantly challenged tim and charlie remained perfectly quiet again the sentry challenged then there was a long silence the sentry probably was unwilling to rouse the place by a false alarm and the splash might have been caused by the fall of a piece of decayed stone from the face of the wall. Tim, you clumsy fellow, whispered Charlie, you nearly spoiled all. Sure, your honor, I was kilt entirely, and my arms were pulled out of my sockets. Holy mother! Who'd have thought to would be so difficult to come down a rope? The sailors are great men, entirely. Now, Timmy, lie quiet. I will turn you on your back and swim across with you. The moat was some twenty yards wide. Charlie swam across, towing Tim after him, and taking the greatest pains to avoid making the slightest splash. The opposite side was of stonework and rose six feet above the water. As soon as they touched the wall, a stout rope was lowered to them. Now, Tim, you climb up first. Is it climb up, Your Honor? I couldn't do it, for it was to save my soul. My arms are gone altogether, and I'm as weak as a child. You go, Mr. Childs. I'll hold on by the rope till morning. They can but shoot me. Nonsense, Tim. Here, I will fasten a rope around your body, then I will climb up, and we will pull you up after me. In another minute, Charlie stood on the bank and grasped the hand of his faithful follower. Hussein threw himself on his knees pressed his master to him. Then he rose, and, at a word from Charlie, they hauled Tim to the top. The rope was taken off him, and noiselessly they made their way across the country. Not a word was spoken till they were at a considerable distance from the fort. "'Where are you taking us, Hossein?' Charlie asked at last. "'I have two peasant dresses in a deserted college a quarter of a mile away.' Not another word was spoken until they reached the hut which stood at the end of a small village. When they had entered this, Charlie first thanked, in the warmest terms, his follower for having rescued them. My life is my lord's, Hussein answered simply. He gave it to me, it is his again, wherever it is useful to him. No, Hussein, the balance is all on your side now. You saved my life that night at Ambor, you saved it that night at Calcutta, for without water you brought us i question whether we could have lived till morning now you have pro 
secured our freedom. The debt is all on my side now, my friend. Hussein is glad that his lord is content. The Mohammedan murmured. Now, what will my lord do? Have you any place in town to which we could go, Hussein? Yes, sahib. I hired a little house. I was dressed as a trader. I have been here for two months, but I could not find where you were confined, although I have tried by all means until I saw your cap. It was foolish of me not to have thought of it before, Charlie said. Well, Hussein, for a little time we had better take refuge in your house. They will not think of searching in the city, and, as Calcutta is in their hands, there is nowhere we could go. Beside, I must discover, if possible, where Miss Haynes is kept a prisoner, and rescue her, if it can be done. The white girl is in the Zenana of Raja Dulab Ram, Hossein replied. Where is the Raja's palace? He has one in the city, one in Ajaram, twenty miles from here. I do not know at which she is lodged. We must find that out presently, Charlie said. It is something to know she is in one of two houses. Now, about getting back into town. I have thought of that, Hussein said. I have brought a quantity of plantains and two large baskets. After the gates are open, you will go boldly in with the baskets on your head. No questions are asked of the country people who go in and out. I have some stain here which will darken your skin. I will go in first with my merchant's dress, which I have here. I will stop a little way inside the gate, and when I see you coming, we'll walk on. Do you follow me a little behind? My house is on a quiet street. When I reach the door, do you come up and offer to sell me plantains? If there are people about, I shall bargain with you until I see that no one is noticing us. Then you can enter. If none are about, you can follow me straight in. Hossein now set about the disguises. A light was struck, and both Tim and Charlie were shaved up to the line which the turban would cover. Charlie's whiskers, which were somewhat faint, as he was still under twenty-one years old, gave but little trouble. Tim, however, grumbled at parting with his much more bushy appendages. The shaven part of the heads and necks and faces were then rubbed with a dark fluid, as were the arms and legs. They were next wrapped in a dark blue clothes, in a peasant fashion, and turbans wound round their head. Hussein then, examining them critically, announced that they would pass muster anywhere. I feel mighty queer, Tim exclaimed, and it seems to me downright undecent to be walking about with my naked legs. Charlie laughed. Why, Tim, you are accustomed to see thousands of men every day with nothing on but a loincloth. Yes, your honor, but then they're heathens, and it seems natural for them to do so. But for a decent boy to go walking about in the streets with a thing on, which covers no more than his shirt, is unnatural altogether. Mother of Moses, what a shindy there would be in the streets of Cork if I was to show myself in such a state. Charlie now lay down for a sleep till morning, while Tim, who had had three hours repose, settled himself for a comfortable chat with Hossein, to whom sleep appeared altogether unnecessary. Between Hussein and Tim there was a sort of brotherly attachment. 
arising from their mutual love of their master. During the two years which Tim had spent apart from all Europeans save Charlie, he had contrived to pick up enough of the language to make himself fairly intelligible, and since the day when Hussein had saved Charlie's life in Ambor, the warmest friendship had sprung up between the good-humoured and warm-hearted Irishman and the silent and dev devoted Mohammedan. Tim's friendship even extended so far as to induce a toleration of Hussein's religion. He had come to the conclusion that a man who at stated times in the day would leave his employment, whatever it might be, spread his carpet, and be for some minutes lost in prayer, could not be altogether a heathen, especially when he learned from Charlie that the Mohammedans, like ourselves, worship one god. For the sake of his friend, then, he now generally excluded the Mohammedans from the general designation of heathen, which he still applied to the Hindus. He learned from Hussein that the latter, having observed from a distance the Europeans driven into the cell at Calcutta, perceived at once how fatal the consequences would be. He had, an hour or two after they were confined there, approached with some water, but the officer on guard had refused to let him give it. He had then gone into the native town, but being unable to find any fruit there, had walked out to the gardens, and had picked a large basketful. This he had brought as an offering to the officer, and the latter had it then consented to his giving one bowl of water to the prisoners. Among them, as he told them, was his master. For bringing a second bowl, contrary to his orders, Hossein had, as Tim saw, been struck down, but had the satisfaction of believing that his master and Tim had derived some benefit from his effort. On the following morning, to his delight, he saw them issue among the few survivors from the dungeon, and had, when they were taken up the country followed close behind them, arriving at the town on the same day as themselves. He had ever since been wandering round the prison. He had taken a house so close to it that he could keep watch on all the windows facing town, and had, day after day, kept his eyes fixed upon these without success. He had at last found out from one of the soldiers that the white prisoners were confined on the other side of the prison, but until he saw Charlie's cap, he had been unable to discover the room in which they were confined. In the morning they started for the town. Groups of peasants were already making their way towards the gate with fruit and grain, and keeping near one of these parties while sufficiently distant to prevent the chance of their being addressed, Charlie and Tim made their way to the gate, the latter suffering acutely in his mind from the impropriety of his attire. No questions were asked. As they passed the guard, they at once perceived Hossein standing a little way off and followed him through the busy streets. They soon turned off into a quiet quarter and stopped at a house, in a street in which scarcely anyone was stirring. Hossein glanced around as he opened the door, and beckoned for them to answer the house. This they did, and were glad indeed to set down the heavy baskets of plantains. My lord's room is upstairs, Hussein said, and led the way to a comfortably furnished apartment. 
I think that you might stay here for months, unsuspected. A sweeper comes every day to do my rooms downstairs. He believes the rest of the house to be untenanted, and you must remain perfectly quiet during the half an hour he is here. Otherwise, no one enters the house but myself. Hussein soon set to work and prepared an excellent breakfast. Then he left them, saying that he would now devote himself for finding out whether the young white lady was in the town palace of the Raja. He returned in the afternoon. She is here, Sahib, he said. I got into conversation with one of the retainers of the Raja, and by giving him some wonderful bargains in Delhi jewelry, succeeded in opening his lips. I dare not question him too closely, but I am to meet him tomorrow to show him some more silver bracelets. It is fortunate, Hussein, that you have some money, for neither Tim nor I have a rupee. Thanks to the generosity of my lord, Hussein said, I am well supplied. The next day Hussein discovered that the windows of the Zenana were at the back of the palace, looking into the large garden. I hear, however, he said, that the ladies of the Zenana are next week going to the Raja's other palace. The ladies will, of course, travel in palanquins. But upon the road I must get to talk with one of the waiting women and might bribe her to pass a note into the hands of the white lady. I suppose they will have a guard with them, Hossein. Surely a strong guard, Hossein answered. The time passed until the day came for the departure of the Rajah's Zenata. Charlie wrote a note as follows. My dear Ada, I am free and am on the lookout for an opportunity to rescue you. Contrive to put a little bit of your handkerchief through the lattice of the window of your room as a signal to us which it is. On the second night after your arrival, we will be under it with a ladder. If others, as is probable, sleep in your room, lie down without undressing more than you can help. When they are asleep, get up and go to the window and open the lattice. If any of them wake, say you are hot and cannot sleep, and wait quietly till they are off again. Then stretch out your arm, and we shall know you are ready. Then we will put up the ladder, and you must get out and come to us as quickly as possible. Once with us, you will be safe. The note was wrapped up very small and put into a quill. As soon as the gates were open, Hussein and his companions left the town and proceeded as far as a grove, halfway between the town and the Rajah's country palace. They are sure to stop here for a rest, Hussein said. I will remain here and try to enter into conversations with one of them, and it will be better for you to go on for some distance and then turn aside from the road. When they have all passed, come back into the road again and I will join you. After waiting two hours, Hossein saw two carts full of women approaching and had no doubt that these were the servants of the Zenata. As he had expected, the drivers halted their cattle in the shade of the trees, and the women, delighted to enjoy their liberty, alighted from the carts and scattered in the grove. Presently, one of them, a middle-aged woman, approached the spot where Hussein had seated himself. Hussein drew out a large 
and beautiful silver breakfast of delhi workmanship would you like to buy this he asked how should i buy it she said i am only a servant it is very beautiful and she looked at it with longing eyes i have two of them he said and they will both be yours if you will do me a service what is it she asked they will be yours if you will give this quill to the little white girl who is in the zenana the woman hesitated it is dangerous she said not at all hussein replied it only gives her news of a friend whom she thought was dead it will cheer her heart and will be a kind action none can ever know it give them to me the woman said holding out her hand i will do it no hossein replied i will give you one now the other one i know that the note is delivered i shall be watching to-morrow if she places her handkerchief in her lattice i shall know that she has got it when she does that i will bury the other bracelet a few inches in the ground just under that window you can dig it up when you will i understand the woman said you can trust me we all like the work girl she is very gentle but very sad i would gladly give her pleasure hussein handed to her the bracelet and the quill she hid them in a dress sauntered away hussein lay back as if taking a sleep and so remained until half an hour later he heard the shouts of the drivers to the women to take their places in the carts then the sound of retreating wheels was heard hussein was about to rise when he heard the clatter of horses hoofs looking round he saw eight elephants each carrying a closed pavilion moving along the road escorted by a troop of horsemen in the pavilions as he knew were the ladies of the rajah's zenana chapter nineteen